You're listening to Manx Radio, and I'm Judith Lay, welcoming you to the podcast of the Manx Sky at Night with Howard Parkin. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It's a great pleasure to welcome Howard Parkin for this month's edition of the Manx Sky at Night. Faster my, Howard. Faster my, Judith. It's great to be here again. Again, we still haven't got as dark skies as you no, would like. No, no, we just don't get the dark skies at all. But we do get the treats I mentioned last month about the noctilucent clouds because they tend to peak from an Isle of Man basis, from a Northern Hemisphere basis, sort of the last week of June, first week or so of July. So this is the time of the year to look at the Northern horizon for these wonderful silvery, bluey-white electric colours clouds uh, high in the sky well after midnight uh, I, have, I have had reports of people seeing them already and um, there has been a few seen spotted uh, on the island as well as further afield so if you're up 12 o'clock 1 o'clock something like that just have a look and if you see these weird clouds in the sky you're looking at noctilucent clouds assuming we get some decent weather then there's a treat in store literally for a couple of days' time because remember we spoke last month about all the planets being in a line and they were indeed in a line. Well, slowly but surely now they're spreading out. Saturn is now rising before midnight followed by Jupiter not far after that. So they're almost becoming what we call evening sky planets but they're dominating the morning sky yet for another week or two. But on the 27th, which is only on Tuesday, we've got the wonderful sight of the, of the planet Venus and Mercury just below it. Now I'm always saying to people because people don't tend to be able to see Mercury very easily, when you've got Venus in the sky and Mercury at the same time, that's a great chance to find it. So in the early morning of the 27th of June, just look to the left of Venus um, there'll be a very thin crescent moon there as well, the old moon fading as we get towards the new moon, and Mercury will be below it. A much fainter star or object, um, I would suggest if you really want to see Mercury, use binoculars, and then once you've seen in binoculars, see if you can see with the naked eye. So you've got Venus, the moon, literally pointing to Mercury, which is just a little bit further below. And that's a real treat for people because the chance of seeing Mercury is, is always iffy at the best or you've got two good pointers for it you will have to be up about four o'clock in the morning though but hey at this time of the year I don't know about you Judith uh, you wake up early because the sky is so clear you know half past three four o'clock you tend to wake up or you, you notice that the sky is clearing or lightning very quickly I mean I know I'm an astronomer and I love looking at the stars and that I want the skies to be dark but when you get dawn and you get dust, the, 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 the colours of the sky, especially if there's no clouds around, even if there's some clouds around sometimes, but you just get these wonderful colours, these reds and oranges. And it's just and sometimes seeing the sun coming up, it's just the dawn of a new day. It's a new beginning and it's, it's a great thing to look for. And you don't need to know what I'm telling people about. Yes, I will tell people which stars they are, which constellations or meteor showers, but sometimes... Just enjoy it like you enjoy scenery. I often say this. You enjoy mountain ranges and lakes. You don't know the names of them. Just enjoy it because that's what it's there. It's the, it's the beauty of nature and the beauty of the heavens. Something that we haven't touched on for ages, it seems to me, is any of the legends that go with the stars and the planets and the naming and you know, You know, Judith, people think we don't plan these things, but that's perfect timing. Because the one thing I was just going to mention, or one of the many things I want to mention, is the fact that the Milky Way is at its best this time of the year. We get the Milky Way right going right across the sky from literally northeast to southwest, and it, it slowly 
traverses the sky depending on um, what time of the night you're looking. But the Milky Way is difficult to spot because it's not dark enough. But if you are up two o'clock, something like that, summer months is the best months for us to see the Milky Way. And of course, the Milky Way has got so many legends attached to it. Of course, it's known in Manx as the Radmore Rigori, the Great Way of King Ori. Uh, when King Ori landed at the Len Trench, they said, where have you from? Where do you come from? Yes, sir. And he said, yonder is from whence I came. For along that way leads the star-spangled dome that leads to my kingdom. And that's the Manx legend. But of course, a more famous legend is the fact, why is it called the Milky Way? And um, it's called the Milky Way because Zeus, the god Zeus, was known to be a bit of a ladies' man. And one time he allegedly had a an affair with this young lady a three it's called a three-day liaison with the exceedingly comely young earth woman anyway they had a liaison and she conceived a child she was a mortal he was immortal of course and the child that was born was hercules and hercules because he was immortal he had to be fed by another immortal woman obviously so the god zeus gave the baby to someone to feed she was asleep cruel thing to do the woman was asleep she awoke to find her feeding this baby so she threw the baby across the sky the baby wasn't appreciative of this of course and the milk spilled out of his mouth and made the milky way and that's where the term the milky way comes from the great way of king ori is also known as the milky way and that's where the name stuck I got more than I bargained for there. <laughs> you don't expect that in an astronomy programme, well, do I you? Just, I, just thought, I just thought we haven't had a legend for ages. Where are we and going with this one? Then... There's lots of other legends as well, but that is the one that stuck the Milky Way. And of course, scientifically, it looks like, or not scientifically, but for the legend, it looks like a, a, a river of milk going across the sky. Yes, I, I, I can see exactly where that one, what, what supports that. But I'll be honest with you, I like the Manx one best. Oh, I do. I think it's much better. I, I think I could, much more romantic. I could give you the American Indians believe it was a celestial path taken by their dead on the way to heaven. Uh, the Vikings also have Valhalla in China and Japan. It was a river inhabited by spirits swimming towards the land of peaches. But what is interesting is that everybody, according to their own culture, has taken a As story... A, a river and b- or because a it's flowing so, place. Yeah. Yes, because it is so spectacular that, it is. that everybody... When you can see it in, it, in it, it, its best, yeah. that everybody would naturally attribute a story that match, matches their own culture. Of course, and that, that's the beauty. And you won't see the Milky Way. People say, where's the Milky Way gone? I, I always remember vividly, I've probably used this story before, we were at the top of Snaefell doing the Pie in the Sky a few years ago now, and it was a be- one of the few really crystal clear nights we had at the top of Snaefell. And this woman was outside and I was showing them the features in the sky. And she said, what a shame about that cloud over there. And I said, that cloud is the Milky Way. Because on a really good clear night, it does look like a cloud. But of course, it's full of stars. But I'll leave it with one point because we, we have these lovely legends, Chinese, Manx, you name it, Hercules, whatever. But it was Galileo in 1610, 400 years ago first turned a telescope on the skies, realised that the Milky Way was not a river. It was not a river of milk or whatever. He realised all the things in it were stars and the stellar composition of the Milky Way was a major discovery by Galileo, which, of course, coming along with his discovery of the moons of Jupiter and things like that, it was a real leap forward in the discovery of science. And that's when astrology and astronomy sort of drifted company, when the, the myths and the legend gave way to the science and the facts, because we'd invented the telescope by then. And that, that's where it comes back to, that moment in time, literally 1610, when Galileo first identified the Milky Way as stellar in composition. 
But mustn't that have been... Uh, I can't even think of a word to describe how he must have felt oh, when he realised that. It must have been. I mean, you imagine looking something for the first time and think, wow. I mean, the moons of Jupiter is what he's most known for, but he discovered so many things, Galileo. He discovered that Venus has got a crescent phase and all the rest. Uh, sunspots on the sun, the, the lot... Just a clever blow, and all because a very primitive telescope had been discovered or invented by a chap called Lippershey in Holland the year before. And he realised, hang on, boys, I could use this and look at the heavens, and the rest is history. Do we know what he was, when, when the telescope was invented, what was he planning to use it for? Well, Lippershey um, discovered in Holland many, many, well, not many years, the year before in 1609, it's attributed to. He was messing around with spectacle lenses and he, he accidentally got two lenses in line and he realised that the object behind was looking closer towards him. And that was the accidental discovery by using lenses that led to the putting them in a tube and making a telescope. Galileo learned to this and thought... Hang on, boys, I could use that. Look at the heaven, look at the moon, and the craters of the moon, all this. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that how much in science is a byproduct of an accident, like yeah. microwaves cooking food and, and this right. kind of thing. The, and, the... I mean, I could go into deep physics of the the uh, microwave background radiation was discovered in a, by a, a machine looking for something entirely different, but they realised this interference they were getting was, in fact, the background radiation from the Big Bang. As you say, an accidental discovery, which is momentous in its uh, magnitude. I, I guess that's how it's always going to be. People mm. doing one one thing and then realising its potential, thinking yeah. outside the box, if it'll do that. Yeah, why we can't can, we do this? Perhaps we can it's, make it... It's the engineers. I always think, we astronomers and scientists, the world over will think of these wonderful ideas and wonderful theories. And then you say... Can you build that for me? And the engineer, oh, go on then. The classic example <laughs> of that is the James Webb Telescope, the engineering yeah. to put that into orbit. And it is imminent. It is imminent that we're going to get some good images of that very soon. Well, yes, and, and we, mustn't, we mustn't kind of preempt the next bit of the programme no, no. too much. So anything else, Howard, that we need to say about the Manx skies? Yeah, I would just mention one other thing. The planets I've already mentioned. Uh, we're not really going to look at the planets until we get to the evening in September, October time. But the other feature, which I saw for myself vividly in TT Week, is as the skies are going dark, look overhead towards the north, but overhead towards the north direction. And I'll be very surprised if you can't spot three bright stars. They're the first three stars that seem to come out in the summer months. These are the three stars of the summer triangle. Deneb in Cygnus the Swan, um, Vega in Lyra the, the Harp, and uh, Alta in Aquila the Eagle. And these three do make up a big isosceles-shaped triangle, you know, the long pointy triangle, um, and they slowly over the summer months drift across our sky before setting in about November. And uh, it, it's, it's great to identify that feature of them. Deneb, the, the one in the swan, is always the highest one, with Vega to the right and um, Altair below. Something else that, and I don't know whether I need, I should say this word because it always makes you look a bit cross. <laughs> uh, we haven't mentioned the moon this this month. Any uh, super moon, wimpy moon? Mm, I'm afraid it's a super moon at the moment. We had a super moon a few weeks ago. The second super moon. In fact, I'll take my astronomy hat off and, and swear at the microphone in inverted commas. <laughs> uh, the best super moon of the year takes place in July. That is on the 13th of July, when the moon is actually at its closest to us this year, when it's full. It's a mere 357,000 kilometres away. And put that in perspective, the moon can be as far away as 400,000 or as near as 357. And it varies somewhere between the two. But when it's at its biggest, it will be ever so slightly bigger. Uh, but nobody would notice it unless you put the, f the wimpy moon, the opposite, of course, which is my own invention, that one. You put that alongside a supermoon, you would notice a slight difference in size. But it's 
It's as I've said before, it's something that the astrologers like to talk about. And we astronomers, if it makes people look at the sky and look at the heavens and appreciate what we're looking at, then OK, we'll tell them. So second supermoon of the year, 13th of July. And there'll be four in total. There's one in um, August and another one in September. Well, it's time for us to take our music break and it's a moon related song. Magic is the moonlight On this lover's June night As I see the moonlight Shining in your eyes Can't resist their power In this moonlit hour Love began to flower This is paradise Living in the splendor Of your kiss so tender Make my heart surrender To your love divine Magic is a moonlight More than any June night Magic is a moonlight For it makes your mind Ya ves ese escucho Un eco divino Can do in la brisa But I say that Si te quiero mucho Mucho, mucho, mucho Tanto como entonces Siempre hasta It is our monthly edition of the Manx Sky at Night and it's my pleasure to have Howard Parkin in the studio. Howard, uh, as we always do in this programme, uh, we looked at our Manx skies in the first part of the programme and now a little bit further afield in the world of space. Absolutely. Well, before we do anything else, bring us up to date because there seem to be ongoing stories oh, that we're always chatting about. So, so much. What, what's happening at the moment? Well, what's appropriate is, of course, July, which is next month now, is the anniversary of the anniversary of the landing on the moon. Of course, 16th of July, they took off, landed on the 21st. And that's coming around now, who would have believed, 53 years ago. You know, it's just incredible. And the world of human spaceflight, to give it its proper title these days, is just awash with news all the time. Only in the last few weeks, 
Amazon. Uh, Jeff Bezos's um, project, his uh, Blue Origins capsule, did its fifth flight into space before brand new astronauts now have gone into space, gone up to the edge of space and come back down again. The Chinese have just launched three new Taikonauts. They don't call them astronauts, they're Taikonauts. A Taikonaut is a Chinese astronaut. A cosmonaut is a Russian astronaut. And everyone else has astronauts. But you'd argue that the cosmonauts came first, so we should all be using cosmonauts, but that's another story. But as well as that, Boeing have just had their first... Um, I think we mentioned this last month. It was just taking place when we were talking last month. Boeing have just launched successfully their Starliner spaceship unmanned to the International Space Station. And there's a wonderful picture on the web of someone in London who took a picture of it approaching the International Space Station. It's just a dot in the, in the photograph, but it's amazing to see. And that now gives NASA, or will give NASA, when they have the first test flight with men and women on board, once that is undertaken successfully, NASA will now have the ability to get people up to the International Space Station with Boeing or with SpaceX, which was always the goal back in 2017. It's taken a while to get there, but we're almost there. At the same time, their own rocket, the brand new SLS launch vehicle, which is the one that's going to take them back to the moon in the Artemis missions, that was rolled out to the pad in early June. Uh, it was having a test fueling of the, the tanks and everything else. Then it's going to go back to the vehicle assembly building, wheeled it all the way back in again, and then they hope to launch that, they hope, by the end of August. And that again is unmanned, but that's going to the moon and back. And then the next mission after that, which will be probably in early 24, will have men and women on board before the next mission after that returns men and women to the moon. So all fascinating stuff, and it's difficult to keep in pace with it all, the, the way it's going on. Well, it, it, it is, but it's the speed that yes. they take the next step. Because once upon a time, you know, like you say, 50-odd years ago, a moon landing, and then it, there would be nothing for, what, 15, mm. 20 years? You know, it was like everything was geared for that moment. Yeah. And then, but now, the, the, the next step, next step is, is a year, it, 18 months. Yeah, even which, quicker, yeah. Which is, which is nothing. I think that's the, the nature of the exploration. I mean, I, I, I don't know much about the exploration of Antarctica, but... People went to Antarctica. We all know the story of Captain Scott and all that sort of stuff. But it was infrequent. Now, of course, there's people living in Antarctica all the time. Aviation, the first few flights were interspersed with nothing happening for months. But now, as I say, just in one sentence, I've talked about the Chinese, Boeing, the American uh, SLS system, uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, Amazon project. You've got Virgin about to start commencing uh, new flights as well. Never mind anyone else. The Indians are planning their own manned missions as well. So it's just accelerating dramatically. I, I struggle to keep pace with it, but it's great because it's showing that the engineering, uh, the safety records, the um, the ability to do it is getting easier. I won't say easier. It's still difficult, but it's getting more commonplace, should we say, routine almost. Uh, it is dangerous, of course. We do know there have been some tra very bad tragedies in the past, and heaven forbid uh, we get any others. But it's just... The, the pace of progress and uh, as I say keeping pace with it is a battle in itself do you think Howard that, that there really should be more more joined up thinking than there is oh definitely definitely I mean we've got this horrible situation in the Ukraine I think I mentioned this last month uh, the Russians and the Americans are still working together with the International Space Station but there are rumblings that this may not continue if this conflict and sort of problem with Russia and the, the rest of the world uh, exists um, and then you might have the problem that the International Space Station could get abandoned. That is as bad as it could get. Uh, hopefully that won't be the case because we want international cooperation. A shining example of that is the, the, um, the James Webb Telescope. I come back to the James Webb because that is a cooperation. It was launched 
It was an American satellite built in America, but it was launched on a European rocket and all the science and the technology, Canadians, the British, the rest. It is a major international project. The Chinese have built their own space station, Tiangong-1, which is orbiting the Earth at the moment with three new astronauts, Taikonauts on board. Um, China are now inviting cooperation or partnership with people, which they weren't previously. Um, so... I think the world are realising that you've got to have international cooperation. You've got to have the finances and the technology to do these things together. Um, they proved that in 1975 when the Russians and the Americans went into space with the Apollo-Soyuz test project. That was the first step which led to the International Space Station. Now, you've not just got international cooperation involved, you've got commercial organisations, people wanting to go into space privately, uh, funded by maybe millionaires, yes, and it, maybe it's a bit elitist, but so was aviation 100 years ago. Now we all travel by by air. And I think spaceflight will, probably in the next 50 years, become far more commonplace and far more accessible to, to everybody. But I, I can't help but, but think that because of the of the huge budgets that are involved, oh, not, yeah. not just the, the sophisticated technology, it, it can't be a race. It can't no. be a competition. Because it's got to be progress. It's got steady yeah, progress. Because otherwise, I think we are going to have dreadful situations like something be put into space, like a space station, and then the funding just evaporate for it or, or the, the, that particular particular country run out of technology yeah. you know the technological ability yeah, it's got to be a joined up thinking and it's got to be a, a, a progressive it's got to be progressive you've got to yeah. take one step at a time but whereas before landing on the moon 30 53 years ago um, was one big step which it was and then we stepped back from it now there's so many people behind taking smaller steps yes but steps nonetheless and uh, maybe that's the the way forward you know, I, I thought of you when I was watching all the coverage of the Queen's Platinum oh, Jubilee. Yes, a few weeks ago, and yeah. the little mention was made again when they were talking about all the significant things that have happened during her remarkable mm. reign. And one of them was that her voice went into space. That's right. And and, and I just thought and those are the little things yeah. that we need to be reminded of. We, we do indeed. And I think we shared in Onken, there's a chap, Phil Archer, who was 100 years old there on Mad Sunday. And you just we were chatting with Phil, and he's bright as a button. And you just look, or anyone who's a, a, a centenarian, um, you just look what they've seen in their life. Mm. You know, from the, the, the dawn of aviation through to landing on the moon and beyond, and the spacecraft going out to the outer solar system, the, the views of Hubble and James Webb and all that. We're very clever. We're, we've got to keep our feet on the ground, literally, and make one step at a time. And, and that's what we're doing, and uh, yeah. who knows where it could lead to. Well... Now, that's it's interesting that you should say that, Howard, because I always love finding a space related story or anything to do with this program. Spotted an article that I, I would love you to, to comment on from completely un, unbiased point of view. And the article asks the question, power stations in space generating power in yep. space that we can use on Earth. Now, Indeed. science fact or science fiction, Howard? Definitely science fact. Uh, the concept was born of science fiction. It was actually Isaac Asimov in 1941 who came up with this idea of these solar-based power stations or space-based solar power, SBSB. And the idea is, and it has been proved, you can transmit by uh, wireless signals uh, energy. Those of you who've got mobile phones, I bet some of you have got these charging pads where you don't plug them in, you just stick them on a pad. That is wireless charging. That is wireless charging. The, the power is being sent to your phone wirelessly 
through the air. Okay, you're sitting your phone on top of it, but there's no wires. And the basic concept of solar-based power is that you put into space, probably into geostationary orbit, that's the point where they orbit the Earth in one location, and they would transmit energy. They'd collect it from the sun, huge solar panels, collect the energy from the sun, and then transmit it via microwave links down to the Earth. It is estimated... They talk about this in this article, that the global energy demand, we, we know global energy demand is increasing at a huge rate, and they reckon it'll double by 2050. Well, this article goes on to say that maybe we could get solar power up and working, probably within 20 years. And I quote, a solar-based power station could play a huge role in our energy ecosystem in the next 20 years. The potential is unlimited. And this is a UK report. So this isn't this isn't Russians or Americans. This is a UK report saying that the ability, the technology exists to do it. We have the technology, Jim. Um, we have the technology to do it, but we haven't done it yet. And they're talking of it. And once you start talking about these things, then maybe they will come into fruition. And that would make such a huge difference if we could get all our power from space. I mean, imagine broadcasting power down to Saharan Africa or down to um, the tundra regions where there's uh, there's difficulty getting cables and things up there. It's a huge potential, and it, it isn't science fiction. It is science fact. Have we got any idea how safe it would be? Because that's always people's question with, with something that is such such uh, uh, almost unheard of technology. Yeah, that's the bit where science fiction blurs into science fact, because we've all seen the James Bond film where he's been strapped to a laser and the laser's going to blast him into bits and pieces. And there is confusion as to just how safe this is well your microwave oven is perfectly safe in your house because it's shielded and you walk past it and all the rest it would be the same with solar power yes somewhere along the line there will be a beam coming down from space to a collector and they're talking about elliptical sized collectors uh, collecting one gigawatt of power prototype designs show that they'll collect at least one gigawatt of power one gigawatt judith will power three quarters of a million houses what three hundred seven hundred and fifty thousand homes would be powered by one gigawatt of power being sent down from space that gives you some idea of the scale involved so yes we've got to be cautious yes we've got to make sure everything's safe and clean and um not dangerous you, i presume flight paths when these beams are coming down you would avoid the flight paths but i don't even know if that's true that's where i say science fiction and science fact blur together um, the concept exists. There are papers being written on it. Um, they're talking about a 20-year development period. There'll no doubt be some small ones happen first, and they'll be t- tried out in space, maybe not in uh, geostationary orbit, maybe in low-Earth orbit. Yes, it would work, and uh, it's interesting to see that the UK scientists, if you like, are looking into this very seriously and uh, worth looking out for. Absolutely fascinating. The other thing that I need to be aware of, Howard, is that we are being beaten by the clock. As always. So, uh, finally, finally, you mentioned a couple of months ago about problems with the observatory on the island. How how are things going? Well, I'm pleased to say uh, we have the reopening in a couple of weeks' time. We actually have got all the work done. Uh, We've now fixed the shutters of the dome. Great big thanks to the people at Laxey um, Mines Research Group because Pete Geddes and the team there have been absolutely marvellous for us. Uh, the scaffolding should have been taken down by now. Um, the shutter's working, the telescope has been cleaned and served as much as we could and put back in the dome. And we're hoping to get the observatory up and running, as I say, from uh, beginning of July onwards. And hot from the press is we have decided we're going to resume having some open nights at the observatory, which we did 
pre-COVID and just at the start of COVID, very popular, very successful. We did them through Eventbrite and lots of people wanted to come along. So we're hoping to start doing them again, probably September time onwards. The astronomical year, as we spoke at the beginning of this programme, tends to run uh, when the skies are dark. So September to March, April is when we tend to have the best stargazing. So we'll hopefully arrange some open nights. Watch this space. I'll be talking about it as and when we announce the dates. Um, But that will be something um, in the very near future. Well, you were hoping that you would have it all working and operational again for the dark sky season starting. So huge congratulations to everybody involved. Howard Parkin, as always, thank you for joining us for this month's edition of the Manx Sky at Night. Thank you, Judith. Good night to everybody. The nation's name.